Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Ghost Riders in the Sky edition. It's July 31st, halfway through summer already. My name is Sarah O'Donnell, and I'm an editorial writer with the Journal. I'm very happy to have by my side here in the newsroom studio today, Provincial Affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. Columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. And reporter Alex Sabjak. Hi. We're all real. None of us is imaginary. We're all actually here and in our seats. My acting skills are not so good as to uh, (laughs) mimic voices like that anyways. So there's no point beating around the bush. This week, we're going to talk about two surprising stories that have dominated Alberta politics this week, flight habits and unexpected salary increases. And then, because it deserves attention and matters a heck of a lot in the long run, we're going to talk about how Alberta is looking after its lakes. So it turns out... There are some stories that can trump license plates. I know some of our listeners will be surprised. When it comes to galvanizing public opinion, one of them involves civil servant salaries. Now, I was operating under the understanding that senior government workers were about halfway through a three-year salary freeze. What changed this week? Uh, Well, it was lifted. We found out that the government had quietly lifted that freeze last week um, and didn't tell anybody. And so what that means essentially is that senior officials who were going to be um, under a a three-year wage freeze will now get a 7% salary increase over the next three years. And that that's as much as the $19,000 range for diplomats and board chairs and, and other people who are appointed to senior positions in the uh, in the government. And why this matters so much is that when this pay freeze was announced, uh, Doug Horner, who was the finance minister, announced it with great fanfare that the government was going to lead by example and freeze the salaries of the most senior civil servants. And that was seen as political strategy to give the government some kind of moral leverage when they were negotiating with AUP and other public sector unions. Now, you could argue that that's a bit unfair to senior civil servants to politicize them and make them kind of the sacrificial lambs, but it was a very politically popular move. Um, Now, once the government signed the deal with AUP, the government then argued ex post facto that it didn't need the pay freeze anymore, and so very, very quietly through an order in council on Friday um, of last week, uh, they rescinded the pay freeze, uh, which was a a story broken by the Wild Rose on Monday. Now, uh, Alex asked me earlier, well, you know, how did the Wild Rose find this out? So at at her suggestion, I have printed off the text of the order in council so that people can understand this is... So remember, when they announced the freeze, they had a huge press conference with press releases leading by example. This is how they rescinded the freeze. The Lieutenant Governor in Council, effective April 1st, 2014 to March 31st, 2015, approves the exclusion by the Minister of the positions listed in Schedules 1 and 2 of Appendix 1 from the Classification Plan and establishes the salary rate or range for those positions as set out in these schedules, rescinds Order in Council numbered 03286-2013. So clear as mud for you now, Alex? Of course, I fully understand it now. So 10 points to the Wild Rose, who uh, over the weekend deciphered what that meant and were very happy to announce uh, this on Monday morning. Hmm. What what did you think about hearing this, Alex? I know you're not at the legislature day to day, but what was your reaction or what reaction did you observe once this happened? 
I mean, I think any time that you see wage increases for people who are already making in the order of $275,000 a year um, on the public dollar, that that can get a little uncomfortable for a lot of people. That's an awful lot of money for most of us. And to see wage increases on top of that, no one's really happy about that. The way it came about, though, and the fact that it was used as a bargaining chip ultimately when dealing with the AUP, I think that would leave a a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Um, As Graham Thompson really, uh, I think, rightly pointed out, when you're looking at the AUP, you're looking at people who in some cases are making around $30,000 a year. And yes, they were awarded a 7% wage increase over three years. To say that as a result of them getting that, these senior civil servants should get something of the same magnitude just... I, again, in, in the context, it, it seems a little bit ridiculous. And, and like I said, the fact that it was done after a public wage freeze, which you assume will be a, a freeze that will be held for the announced period, and it was done, as Paula said, with fanfare, uh, that just that, that doesn't sit right with me, and I, I think with a lot of other people as well. Yeah, I thought it was crazy because it seemed like in the recent years, the one thing they had said, okay, we're going to f- freeze these salaries, and it was it was as clear as could be. I didn't hear anybody saying, after the AUPE got their settlement, I didn't hear anybody saying, you know, I think that we should, you know, look at reversing that. I heard no public discussion about this. So why would cabinet do this now? Did you do you have any better understanding, Mary? Because I, yeah, I don't. I don't. Well, different people have different theories. One, I mean, the government says that this is standard practice. That, as Paula had suggested earlier, that when the AUPE or when government employees get a deal, they extend it to other senior managers or senior officials within government. The Wild Rose has their own theory that they did this over the summer um, when people are not really paying attention. Um, and, you know, it's it's the it's the end of July. People are on vacation. They're they're It's the hottest week of the year. I mean, people are not paying attention to this kind of thing. Um, and Rob Anderson suggested that maybe the intention here was to quietly pass this now so that whoever becomes the new progressive conservative leader and premier in September doesn't have to take any flack for doing it then. Hmm. It's really extraordinarily poor strategy because even though that order in council is clear as mud, did they really think that nobody was going to notice this over time? Well, this is like, and this is a government that has talked, I mean, so much about being accountable and transparent um and and when you look at those those two events you know last year and last february when doug horner the finance minister announced this as paula said with great fanfare news releases you know they got a lot of press about this um and and it was just before the brutal budget that's right and then to then a year and a half later very quietly in the dead middle of the summer pass it through a an ordering council that you know that is passed in cabinet uh, during a cabinet meeting on a Tuesday but isn't released until a Friday afternoon at four o'clock when people are basically out the door is I think to a lot of people part of almost a bigger issue than the fact that there are there were raises Um, you know if if you're going to talk about accountability and transparency then extend it to both sides of that 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 action and if you're going to do it defend it but be upfront about it yeah so is this something that's just going to be a brief spark of controversy and go away do you think or is this something that's going to smolder and fester and continue to cause problems i think that it's going to be something that's going to be brought up by the aupe when they've got to go through their next round of bargaining Ooh. i mean we know that the union isn't exactly on the best terms of the government and there was a really acrimonious relationship there when when we were dealing with the new contract for the aup and i just really think that this is something that that won't be forgotten I don't know how much leverage the public will give this three years from now, but I do think for those union workers who accepted, uh, who accepted that pay raise within that scope, and then and then see that it was used by the government for something else, I think that that will be something they'll bring up in the future. Okay, let's go from this because this this was a hot topic, but 
it actually, there was something even hotter. I think it's fair to say that although salary matters smolder, uh, air travel, I think, has been an absolutely toxic issue for the progressive conservatives in the last few years. Way more damaging than not like a hundred different license plate controversies. So who wants to sum up for our listeners just so that they can be spared me droning on about this? Why Alison Redford's flying habits were back in the news this week? Well, our um, very talented colleagues at the CBC, uh, Charles Rusnell and Jenny Russell, were leaked a draft Auditor General report into the um, use of government planes by the Premier. And they uncovered some pretty astounding things um, in that report. The most interesting, of course, was that there had been a practice where government staff would book essentially fake passengers on government flights using the internal booking system so that other elected officials, MLA staff, that sort of thing, civil servants, wouldn't be able to access that flight so that the premier could either fly alone or with her entourage of chief of staff and, and aide and that sort of thing and security guard. And and family members. Right. And the, and the, the, the allegation or the according to the report, is that, that they would then remove those names before the plane actually took off That's so they right. didn't appear on the manifest. That's right. Right okay. before the final manifest would, was, would be printed off, they would remove those names so that there, there weren't false passengers on the actual final manifest. But what the, what the Auditor General says in the report, according to the CBC, is that the implications are that other people who want to be able to access those flights can't. And an extension of that then is, are we spending more money to fly people on other flights because they weren't able to fly with the Premier on a government flight. And they also uh, reported that the AG had found that she derived a personal benefit from using the planes to fly with her daughter. And and she sort of acknowledged as much in March when she paid back um, $3,100 for flights that, that uh, had included her daughter and, and or, some friends of her daughter as well. Right. Now, Albertans already knew that former Premier Redford's traveling habits were part of this constellation of problems that led to her resignation from the Premier's job in March. But I want to know, Alex and Paula, how you guys think this compares to, you know, these issues that apparently are being raised in the Auditor General's report, how they compare to, you know, the $45,000 South Africa flight or the $3,100 that she repaid for the, 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 the flights involving her daughter. Where, where does this stack up? The optics of this are actually worse, even if the sums of money involved are smaller. Really? The, I think the optics of this are terrible because they speak to a sense of grotesquely overblown entitlement and the sense that she was too good to fly with her own cabinet ministers on the plane. I mean, the Wild Rose went so far as to call for a criminal investigation, and there was even some some talk, Jonathan Dennis then stepped back from this, that they were going to turn the files over to the RCMP for investigation. I think that's going too far. I, I, I think it would be very, very difficult to prove that this was a criminal act. But the rank arrogance that government staffers would book fake people, the ghost riders in the sky, as I like to call them. Miriam prefers fakes on a plane, but I'm a ghost riders in the sky I kind of person. I think everybody, first, so uh, she won the title. I think most people prefer fakes on a plane, but I'm just, just right. saying. Yeah. F- whether you want to call them fakes on a plane or ghost riders in the sky, the idea that it was policy in the premier's office to load up the plane with imaginary guests so that the premier could have the unique privilege of flying in the plane all by her royal self, I think is really, that's something that is going to stick with her and stick with the party in a way that, I mean, let us be clear, Ralph Klein abused the plane in 
equally profligate ways. And he didn't fly his imaginary friends on the plane. He flew his real friends on the plane. So let us not pretend that Alison Redford invented some kind of new abuse of the plane. The problem is that this kind of high-handed arrogance is part and parcel of the Alison Redford narrative. And that's what's so damning and so damaging about do you, this. Do you think she was actually instructing staff to do this herself? Or do you, do you think that, do we know if staff were doing this on their own? Um, well, for the record, she did release a statement that said, um, I would be surprised if these allegations are true. But in any event, I also understand that the draft report makes clear that these were not practices that I had knowledge, any knowledge of. Um, so, uh, you know, for the record, those are her comments that she wasn't responsible for this. She didn't know about it. And she also mentions that she uh, that as far as she can remember, there was often other uh, government officials on the plane with her that she rarely traveled alone. Well, we should point out that the CBC report said it was about a dozen times she used the planes all the time. Right. I mean, she had- dozens of times a month, perhaps like I mean, it, she was using them all the time. So a statement like that could very well be true while these allegations could also still ver- very well be true they're not mutually exclusive uh, some people have said several people have said that she needs to resign her seat as an MLA because she has continued to serve as an MLA do you do you think it's time does she need to resign that seat I think it's time that that question be asked I think it's a it's a legitimate question to be asked I think especially because right now in terms of, of this latest story the prospect of a police investigation is being raised by people on all sides of 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 the the fray right we've got the wild rose saying calling for an an investigation into breach of trust but we're also seeing all three of the the progressive conservative leadership candidates saying that they would would support um a criminal investigation if the evidence warranted it um all of them sort of saying that if it came to that then yes they need to do that and and also um you know, Jim Prentice said yesterday, if, if that is the case, then she needs to resign. Thomas Sukazic said she should resign and or or he would raise the um, the prospect of, of her removal from the Tory caucus. So um, Rick McIver, um, for his own part, said that Albertans should be the people who decide who represents them and what party represents them. Um, but, you know, I think the fact that a, the question of a police investigation is being raised seriously is 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 I, makes this the most serious I think sort of allegations that we've seen against her and and I think going back to what I said at the beginning makes that question a really legitimate one is she is she representing her constituents now is is she able to represent them um effectively um I I don't know the answer to that I mean frankly I think Never mind for the good of the Tory party, about which I'm not terribly invested. But, you know, for for her sake as a human being and as a mother, I think she should have resigned her seat at the time that she resigned the premiership. I, I don't understand why she would want to carry on as a backbench MLA. I, I, I would think that, you know, you rip off the Band-Aid and, and move on with your life. Uh, for her to be in the legislature in the coming weeks and months is going to be a constant source of distraction for everybody. And I also think that at this point... Maybe we also just need to hear a little bit more from her, right? Like there's just been this real cone of silence. We've had this one press release uh, regarding the latest, the Auditor General's report and, and these allegations about flight um, flight record manipulation. But at this point, I don't know, maybe she needs her own blog post. Maybe, maybe she needs to do her own sit-down interview because these are... Uh, I'm not sure if I would characterize them as attacks, but again, these were people who were very close to her, her friends. And and at a certain point, I do wonder if you have to stand up and and say something for yourself. If your constituents need to hear you stand up and say something for yourself. Um, And that's just something we we haven't really heard yet. So, okay, though salaries and air travel are talkers, we cannot deny that. There's another issue that, as I said in the intro, I want to talk about. 
And maybe it's just because I'm enjoying an Alberta staycation this year uh, and I'm trying to find beaches and lakes to enjoy with my family. But I was really interested in every word of the package that Alex did on the weekend about Alberta lakes. And I know I'm not the only one. So we wanted to have Alex on the show, especially so that she could talk to us about why you did this project and, and why you were looking at the issue of water quality in Alberta lakes. Uh, so a couple of things. I guess first of all, like a lot of people, I've I've noticed more blue-green algae warnings coming out for some of our favorite lakes and places that we like to go nearby Edmonton. And it just seems like the those warnings were getting worse and they're becoming more frequent and coming earlier in the season. I've got to admit a bit of a bias as well. I'm, I'm from BC. I moved here about seven years ago and I don't think I've ever quite gotten the past the feeling that Alberta lakes just aren't quite as as nice as some of those deep blue clear watering holes that you find all over the place in BC. I would critique that, but I spend time in Ontario Lakes, so I have fought the same feelings. I understand. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was it was a, a a wanting to of trying to find out what's going on with Alberta Lakes. Are they in fact are is the water quality getting worse, or is this an awareness issue? What what's sort of happening here? And so, what did you find out? You know, a lot of things, and some of them these these issues have have been issues on the table for years. But maybe one thing to point out is that when we talk about the water quality warnings, the blue green algae warnings, there was a new system implemented uh, when AHS was created that makes it a, a more uniform way of reporting blue green algae warnings. So before they might have been done differently by the different health regions. Now it's a really uniform way, and I think that it's a much more public way of letting people know about uh, blue green algae warnings in different lakes around the province. So I think that that's done a lot to actually to raise people's awareness and to get people thinking more about the blue-green algae issue in lakes. So that was one thing. But also, there, as as anyone who's sort of followed this issue for years, there are real problems with how development has occurred around Alberta lakes and how it's managed. And essentially, uh, when you development-related activities will affect lake health, uh, things such as fertilizers or agricultural runoff or a development that totally raises the, rip- the riparian barrier that protects it sort of the lake from things that are getting into it filters things that are coming into the lake all of so these like things. grasses and stuff like that exactly yeah that's that's the better way of putting it um all of these things that will contribute to the phosphorus concentration of a lake um you can look at my stories if you want the full explanation on how sort of blue green algae blooms and, and how that's related to phosphorus but i guess to sum it up very quickly basically high concentrations of phosphorus are really going to feed those blue green algae blooms so you want to really limit how much of that nutrient you have in in your lakes the problem with alberta lakes is that we live in we have very nutrient-rich soils. We have fertile agricultural land. So a lot of lakes have a lot of this, or naturally have a lot of phosphorus in them, which means, you know, naturally, again, they're going to be more prone to these algae blooms. But a lot of what we've done around lakes hasn't really helped the situation. One of the things I learned from you, and I'm embarrassed to say that I did not know this, is that blue-green algae is not actually algae at all, but bacteria. But that that's not the big, you know, take-home <laughs> message. I think if, you, but... if you brand yourself blue-green algae, people can be forgiven for yeah, assuming you're algae. It's, it's true. But the other thing that I thought was very interesting is that despite all these different warnings in different lakes all over the province, especially central Alberta, it seems, is that you say you, you, you've you looked at things and there isn't like a central kind of coordinating theme or I guess like there's no 
grand plan to deal with this on a province-wide basis is that fair or am i misstating i don't i don't think you're misstating that at all it's uh it's interesting one of the gentlemen that i talked to who started up a lake stewardship group for a small lake west of edmonton he said you know i kept on trying to find the person who would be the person in charge of lakes and who could tell me this is what you need to do and he says i still haven't found that person yet and i i think i started off doing these stories also trying to find that person and as someone explained to me lakes are kind of a tricky tangle of jurisdictions you have the province that's in charge of the water quality. You have municipalities or counties or sometimes something as small as a summer village that's responsible for development around the lakes. And ultimately, land development is going to affect the lake health. And then to add another layer, you have the federal government that's actually responsible for the fish inside the lakes. So you have these different layers that are sort of working together. Um, and, and I think that does really make things diff- difficult. Uh, what you're seeing now is, I, I don't know if it's entirely related to the blue-green algae warnings or if there's just something that's made people who live by these lakes or use them a lot. There, there really is a volunteer movement. There's a drive. There's real uh, grassroots movements, I think, taking hold of people who use these lakes to say, we want to do something to preserve water quality or to improve water quality. And I, 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 I really don't think I'm overstating the case to say that it is a movement. There's, there's so many people who really want to see something done. But is this something? volunteers should have to do I, I guess is that just the Alberta way do we need should it be driven by volunteers or is this something that well, ought to be driven by a combination of gov- you know or at least have government spearheading an initiative and then recruiting volunteers well, it's lovely to see volunteers taking a leadership role in a leadership vacuum um, and we should be very grateful for all the people who were doing that but you're right Sarah it is an indictment of the failure of the government to provide any kind of coordinated leadership or oversight th- that people want to do that and you it, always make me sound so much smarter than I just sounded <laughs> so when you when you take what I said and actually say it there we go <laughs> sorry <laughs> I've just noticed that over the weeks, but continue, please make me continue to make me sound good. Well, as I'm sure you would have pointed out, uh, lakes are an important public trust. I mean, sure, the people who have are lucky enough to have lake cottages uh, might have a particular point of interest, but those lakes belong to all Albertans, and uh, we all have a stake in ensuring that they exist and and, and are perpetuated, not only for um, for tourism reasons and for quality of life but for the important watershed they provide for, for all the uh, the animals in the ecosystem. So water quality, hot topic in the halls of the legislature? Um, no. Oh. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of really critical issues that are hot topics right now in the legislature. I, I, I think um, you won't be surprised to hear. I mean, aside from the fact that there's a leadership race, it's, it's, you know, the dog days of summer and people are not focusing on this kind of thing. And when we do hear about... Uh, you know, when when opposition parties that sort of thing raise raise the issue of water quality, we often hear about it um, more related to oil and gas industry and and leaks and runoff and that sort of thing. And so, um, but I have to say, I also have noticed over the years that there seem to be a lot more blue green algae war- warnings. It's like a when is there not a blue green algae warning in the province? Exactly, and and I feel that um, I should also mention that so you have these volunteer groups who are really for- forming and. and uh, wanting to get something done to do research to develop plans for their lakes you also have some really amazing nonprofit organizations like the Alberta Lake Management Society like the North Saskatchewan uh, Watershed Alliance uh, who are really sometimes providing these volunteer groups with technical guidance or policy guidance to to try and get things moving to plan for good healthy lakes and when you do have a particularly vocal group of volunteers or a 
yeah, the, the people who maybe know how to rattle the right chains, you are seeing the government, the provincial government, step in with uh, maybe initiatives to help a particular lake or do a particular study of research. So you are seeing those things sort of piecemeal. But again, as Paula said, you're not seeing an overall coordination, a coordinated strategy. And, and the government um, policy spokesperson that I spoke to said, you know, they recognize this and they, they do want to work towards that. How long it will take, I, I don't know. But there is a recognition that there needs to be something more an overarching strategy that's going to help everyone who wants to do this. Let's head on into our final segment, the last part of our weekly podcast, Good Stuff from the Gallery. That's where we're going to quickly recommend something we think would make for good political reading or watching or uh, or, lis- or listening to even an audio experience, just like the Press Gallery podcast. Who wants to start? I'll go ahead. Um, I have two. One of them, if you're if you're a listener of the Press Gallery, you've probably already read this, but on the off chance you haven't, go to the Calgary Herald website and read Susan Elliott's blog um, about Redford and her unspeakable disappointment. Susan Elliott was um, Redford's former campaign manager, and it's a pretty remarkable mm-hmm. um, post there. Um, but then I also have, and this was like, a, I just love this story so much, and I think it's such a great response. Um, it is Turkish women defy deputy PM with laughter. It's in the Guardian newspaper. It's written by Constance Lech. She's uh, in Istanbul, a correspondent there. Um, basically, uh, the Turkish deputy prime minister um, in a speech said that, you know, women should hold themselves to high moral standards and not laugh in public. And women in (laughs) Turkey, in response to this, launched the most brilliant social media campaign in which they took beautiful photographs of themselves laughing, mouths wide open, heads thrown back. It was beautiful and a great response. And, And really, every time I looked at one of those photos, it was like they were just having this great laugh at his expense. And um, uh, this article, if you read, you'll see as he tries to distance himself from those comments, he only digs himself deeper. Oh, that happens sometimes. Okay. Paula, you've got something? I do. This is this week marks the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the First World War. And so I wanted to recommend a really remarkable book that I've been enjoying this summer. It's by the Canadian historian Margaret Macmillan, and it's called The War That Ended Peace. And it is a very accessible surprisingly in parts bleakly funny look at the political culture that led up to the beginning of World War One, at what a family quarrel it was between the cousins who were the Kaiser of Germany, the Tsar of Russia, and the, uh, the King of Great Britain. And Macmillan has a great way of taking a really complicated historical thing and creating these wonderful little tiny cameo portraits of the politicians and the political players and so it's a very sobering read it's a surprisingly uh, provocative read and I, I can't recommend it strongly enough although it's not exactly what you'd call typical summer fair. No. And Alex, wind us up with the good stuff from the gallery. Sure, this is a short one, and it's it's just related to what we talked about today. I'm going to recommend, in Graham Thompson's absence, his column, Lipstick Won't Disguise This Mess, Raised for Senior Civil Servants Underhanded. I thought he did a great job of just explaining all of the different factors and, and the dynamics around uh, what it really meant to have these senior civil servants given this raise. It's not necessarily about the fact that they're earning more money. It's just the context in which it happened. I th- think he summed it up bri- brilliantly, and he also used the word, as Paula pointed out, Perfidious, which I don't think we get to use in the newspaper very often. And so I'm going to have to go I hope he up. won a contest for getting that in the paper. <laughs> yeah, he should definitely receive some sort of prize. Yeah. Well, thanks, everyone. That's it for this week. And this marks the beginning of my uh, two-week vacation. So Keith Drine will be filling in as host. 
I'll be I'll be sitting there on an Alberta beach with my kids, listening to the show and enjoying it like everyone else. And the blue green algae. That no no will be blue green algae free. I'm sure. And. While I'm on vacation, I also know that I can find the podcast and videos. This week, there'll be a video clip courtesy of journal photographer and videographer Ed Kaiser on edmontonjournal.com. I'll be able to find old archives of the show on edmontonjournal.com slash opinion, on SoundCloud, and on iTunes. I'm going to subscribe on my kids' iPods so that they're also subscribers so that they can listen to me whenever they want. You guys can do the same. Because <laughs> that's what 10-year-olds want, to be able to Absolutely. listen to their mother's voice 24-7. Exactly. I want them to know that I'm always there. <laughs> that's it for this week. Look forward to hearing you all in the press gallery next week.